0: What was it like? What happened? And what is it like now? Welcome to episode 168 of The Recovery Show. This episode is brought to you by Lucy, Melanie, and Michael. Thank you, Lucy, Melanie, and Michael, for your generous contributions. This episode is for you. We are friends and family members of alcoholics and addicts who have found a path to serenity and happiness. We who live or have lived with the seemingly hopeless problem of addiction understand as perhaps few others can. So much depends on our own attitudes, and we believe that changed attitudes can aid recovery. Before we begin, we would like to state that though we at the Recovery Show may be in a 12-step program, we represent ourselves rather than the program. During this show, we will share our own experiences. The opinions expressed here are strictly those of the person who gave them. Take what you like and leave the rest. We hope that you will find something in our sharing that speaks to your life. My name is Spencer, and I'm your host today. I was invited to present an open talk this weekend, and after a short pause for contemplation, I said yes, so without further introduction... Here it is. My name is Spencer, and I am a grateful recovering member of Al-Anon. I want to say thank you to the district for organizing this series of open talks. Uh, I hope to see more and more people coming to these talks. We've only done, what, three or four now? Um, And I want to say thank you to Diane for inviting me, even though it took me a couple of weeks to actually say yes when she asked. The question I always struggle with in this talk, and and this is going to be the traditional talk, what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now. But the question I always struggle is where do I start? Do I start with my childhood? Do I start with when the alcoholic drinking got really bad? Where do I start? And the place that I identify as my start as a member of Al-Anon was the day that I fell to my knees and admitted my powerlessness over my wife's drinking. I was in the friends and family program uh, at a local recovery center. Wasn't the first time I'd been in the friends and family program at a local recovery center. And it happened at least twice before. My memory's a little fuzzy on this because she had been drinking. Uh, And that made my memory fuzzy. (laughs) Funny how that works, you know. Anyway, I was there, and that day they said something. The person who was speaking in one of the sessions that I was in said something that I had probably heard before. But that day, I heard it. And what she said was, I did not cause it. I could not cure it, referring to my wife's drinking and I could not control it. Well, my whole life for the last several years had been centered around trying to control her drinking. So you would think that hearing this and really hearing it would bring us feeling of despair or hopelessness. But what it brought to me was a feeling of relief. I had this physical sensation of weight coming off of me of releasing me. And that is the moment that I identify now as when I took for the first time in my heart, that first step and admitted my powerlessness. I already knew my life was unmanageable, but that was driven home to me. I think it was a little bit later in the afternoon. I picked up this little flyer. It's titled, Are You Troubled by Someone's Drinking? Al-Anon is for You. This flyer has 20 questions on it starting with, do you worry about how much someone else drinks? And including, do you feel like a failure because you can't control the drinking? Do you think that if the drinker stopped drinking, your other problems would be solved? Yes, yes, yes. Do you feel there is no one who understands your problems? Absolutely, yes. I answered yes to 16 of those questions. I answered maybe to one of them, and the other three we're pretty clearly no. And they, and, and as I look back with clearer hindsight, they still, I would have answered no. The kicker is, of course, at the bottom here. And it says, and the way I remember it is a little different than what it actually says. If you have answered yes to any of these questions, Alanon or Alatine may be able to help. What I remember it saying was, if you have answered yes to three of these questions. Okay. So, you know, my memory's not perfect or else they changed it. I'm going to go with that. Uh, But in any case, 16 is a lot more than one or even three. So those two things came together, and I thought, I need help. If I can't fix her and I'm miserable, I need to do something. And maybe, just maybe, this Al-Anon thing will help. Who knows? So I got in the car, was driving back to to Ann Arbor down U.S. 23. Those of you who know where local recovery centers are now know where I was. And I called a friend because, of course, it's perfectly safe to use your cell phone while you're driving down U.S. 23 at 70 miles an hour. I called a friend who I knew was in AA, and I said, do you know anything about Al-Anon? And he said, yes. He said, there's a wonderful meeting just around the corner from my house. It's tonight. Would you like me to take you and introduce you to some people? Okay, higher power in action here. And, of course, I said, um, let me think about it. (laughs) Because what would you say? Okay, that's what I said. I thought about it for maybe 30 seconds, and I hit the redial button and said, yes, please. So that was the day I went to my first Al-Anon meeting also. And I'll talk about that a little bit later. But that's that's where my story in Al-Anon starts. But I want to go back. Because what I've come to understand as I've been in the program over the years, as I have worked through these steps and and been to many, many meetings and listened to many shares, um, is that it was not my wife's drinking that qualified me for Al-Anon. My wife's drinking brought me to Al-Anon. But what qualifies me for Al-Anon is the guy here behind the microphone, me. Um, and I can go back in time and I can realize that From the earliest time that I can identify these thoughts, I knew, I knew to the depth of my soul that it was my job to fix everybody else. So is it any surprise that all of the people that I have had serious relationships with throughout my entire life are people that, quote, needed fixing? And I'll tell you what, alcoholic is a perfect example of somebody who needs fixing. Oh, yeah. And I didn't consciously make these decisions, but there's a pattern. You know, once, okay, once is happenstance, twice is coincidence, three times, it's a pattern. And it was more than three times, I'll just say that. Yeah, so I married an alcoholic. And and when, when we got together, we were in our 20s, we drank, it was normal that, She had a wine rack in the kitchen while she was a grad student and, you know, living on ramen effectively, but got to have that wine because, you know, that's important, right? I didn't, I didn't understand what that went, what that meant. They seemed normal. So, yeah, so I'm my own qualifier. I want to rescue people. So that set me up, that set me up perfectly for living with the progressive disease of alcoholism, chronic, progressive, what's the third? Fatal? Um. <laughs> yeah her drinking she identifies that she drank alcoholically from the time she was a teenager that's not my story um, what I saw was that after we had children and we had twins it was a rough pregnancy all of a sudden two kids in the house from zero um, and she started drinking more as they sort of hit toddlerhood and her ability to control what was around her this is again i'm I'm identifying what she has said. This is not my observation. um Her ability to control what was around her got got less, and so she she drank to compensate sort of a normal reaction except for the fact that eventually the drinking became its own object rather than anything to deal with emotions or or the world. Um, I was not willing for the longest time, to apply that word alcoholic. She said, I think I'm an alcoholic long before I was willing to let that word pass my lips because I felt that that was something shameful. I felt that that was something that indicated that I was a bad person. And I didn't want to let anybody know what was going on. And the consequence of that was a lot of isolation, a lot of feelings of shame. Uh, Some of the questions on there, do you turn down social opportunities? Yes. Do you stop inviting people over to your house? That's not a question on there, but yes. Um, Do you stop talking about what's going on at home? Yes. Do you make excuses for the other person? Yes. Um, Do you not want to have your kids bring their friends over? Yes. Did I get full, full of rage? Yes, that is the thing that I can identify as one of the primary effects, along with this whole you know, hopelessness and despair thing, uh, of, of our situation on me. And that rage did not come out on her, because for me it was not emotionally safe to be angry at her. So that came out on primarily my children, my co-workers. I have made amends to my children for my anger, for screaming at them and pounding the table when they spilled a little bit of milk. Uh, My daughter has said, I would just go in the other room and I would know that you would calm down and then it would be okay again. It's hard to say, you know. It's hard to admit, but I need to. I need to own it because that's who I was. And I've heard it said that You can always tell who's the non-drinker in an alcoholic home because they're the one that's crazy. (laughs) They're the one whose behavior shows. And it was true in our home. She was a very quiet drinker. But I, I could have lost my job because of my anger. I had a boss who, who one year at my annual review said, I think you really need to go for some anger management classes. Or else you're probably not going to be working here very much longer. And I think that was either the year I had already started in Al Anon or the year right before I came to Al Anon, because this is part of the what happened and, and what it's like now, uh, which I will get to. How did, how did that happen? So I came to my first Al Anon meeting, April 10th, 2002. And I walked into a church on the west side of Ann Arbor. And there was this huge crowd of people in the lobby, and a lot of them were going to the AA meeting downstairs, but the f- just about the first person I saw when I walked in the door was the wife of a friend of mine. And the first words out of her mouth were, it's not him. Oh. <laughs> I couldn't say that, could I? Uh, and the thing that I didn't understand, and it took me a while to understand, was why was I ashamed of meeting somebody I knew? Because we were both there for the same reason. We were both there because somebody else's drinking had had a serious effect on our ability to live life. But I didn't understand that. Um, I went into the meeting room. I sat by the door so that I could escape if I needed to. I was not there in a good place in my, in my head, you know. I cried. I think I said something. Like, oh, my God. She's in the treatment center. I hope it works this time. Um, But at the end of that hour, I knew something huge. I knew something amazing. I knew I wasn't alone. I knew that there was at least one room full of people in the world in Ann Arbor who understood what was going on in my life, who understood what was going on in my house and didn't judge me for it. And that was enough to get me to come back. And I kept coming back. I have to say that that stay in the treatment center um, did not solve the drinking. She relapsed within a few weeks. I don't remember exactly. And I found myself with a question that I did not know how to answer. And that question was, can I stay in this marriage? Can I continue to live with what's going on here. Can I continue to live with the drinking and the behavior or do I need to leave? And I thought I was faced with a black and white choice or maybe it was more like purple and green because I didn't want either of those answers. I didn't want to leave and I didn't see how I could stay. And of course, I would come home from a meeting and she would say, are those Al-Anon people telling you to, telling you to leave me? And I would say, no, they're not. And she would say, are you going to? And I would say, I don't know, which was not an answer she wanted to hear. Okay. She wanted me to say no, but I couldn't say no because I didn't know. And thank God for Al-Anon because what you people told me was you don't have to decide if you don't know what the right answer is as long as you're not in danger well I was only in danger emotionally and I felt I could deal with that um, there was no abuse happening I was doing it all to myself so I'm like okay I gotta sit with this question I gotta sit with this question I remember very early in in the time that I was in Illinois and I remember pulling out the newspaper remember the newspaper yeah <laughs> We used to have a newspaper, and it had this section called classified ads, and I remember looking at the classified ads for apartments that I could move her into so she wouldn't be in the house, because I thought, well, that's one way I can continue to stay married and live with this situation is for her not to be in the house. Never followed through on that. Couldn't afford it. Uh, housing in Ann Arbor is expensive enough without adding another apartment to it, right? <laughs> And I don't know whether she, she probably wouldn't have anyway, right? But, you know, that was my thinking. That was my best thinking at the time. Like, move her out. Okay, there's the answer. Yeah. Um I want to back up a little bit because I had heard about Al-Anon in, before I actually came here uh, in the way of somebody at a treatment center saying, oh, and, and you, like friends and family, you guys should probably consider going to Al-Anon because it might help you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Sure. She's got the problem. Okay? She needs to stop drinking, and everything will be fine. That was question number what, 16 here? Um, 17, do you think that if the drinker stopped drinking, your other problem would be solved? And, of course, yeah, the answer to that was obviously yes. Um, turns out it wasn't, but that's a little bit later. So, yeah, so she relapsed. She ended up going to an inpatient treatment on the other side of the state for, like, four months. So here I was. I was a single dad with two preteen children. Driving to Grand Rapids once a week for friends and family day. And my life was easier than it was when she was living at home and drinking. What the heck? Like, my life was easier. Okay. And that, (laughs) that drove home the unmanageability. So I'm coming to Alanine meetings and I'm starting, I'm starting to hear what you are saying. I'm starting to hear some messages. I'm starting to see that there are those of you in those rooms who are still living with active drinking, and you're not miserable. You're not crazy. You're not angry all the time. And I wanted that. I wanted to not be angry all the time. I wanted to not be miserable. I wanted to be able to smile and laugh. So I started listening. I started listening to what you were saying. And I heard things like, let go and let God. That was one of the very first things that I heard, whether it was from somebody's words or from the book. I picked up that blue book, How Elanon Works, pretty quickly. I am a reader. Um, I have to say, yeah, we've got a few on the table there. Um, that book saved my peace of mind and allowed me to get sleep so many times because I would be awake at 2 in the morning. How many of you have been awake at 2 in the morning because you can't sleep, right? Okay. I've been awake at 2 in the morning. I would pick up the book. I would read one of those stories in the back. And that would give me a little bit of hope and a little bit of peace. And maybe I could get back to sleep so I could go to work in the morning. I started to listen and I heard let go and let God in. and I wasn't sure about the God part, which is another part of my story. But the let go part, I could I could latch on to that. I could try to do that. I could try to let go of trying to fix her drinking. Sounds hard, but you know it actually wasn't as hard as it sounded. I just had to keep reminding myself, you know, every 15 minutes or so. Um, no, let go. I put it on my phone. My phone had a place where I could put one line of text because it was one of those old stick phones. For those of you who remember that, maybe some of you remember dial phones. I sure do. <laughs> uh, but that <laughs> and had a line for, place for a line of text and I put let go. So every time I picked up my phone, I'd be reminded to let go. Let go was important to me. And when I let go, this seemed like a pattern again. Maybe it was just coincidence, but it seemed like a pattern. When I let go of trying to fix her, then she sought help. Is that a pattern? Is that a coincidence? I don't know, but it happened. Um, and so I kept working on it. Uh, I started hearing work the steps. What the heck does that mean? There are words on a piece of paper. What does it mean, work? Um, I got together with some other people from my meeting and, and I think they pulled in some people from another meeting and we formed an AWOL group. AWOL stands for A Way of Life or A Way of Living. It was a, For us, it was a group of eight of us who met every week and we worked through the steps in that handbook. I, You know, you asked if I was going to refer to, to literature and I said, no, no, I'm just telling my story. But the literature is part of my story. I just don't think about it that way. Handbook called Paths to Recovery. It has questions for each of the steps and the section with the questions is headed working the step. Okay. So if I can answer those questions and I can understand what this step means to me and I can understand how I might begin to apply the principle of that step in my life then I've worked it. So we met every Monday. We made a commitment to come. We made a commitment to at least try to think about the questions that might be on our agenda for that evening uh, beforehand. I, tried to write down my answers because if I don't write them down, I don't answer them. It's very easy to, for me to read a question and say, um, yeah, okay, I got that. If I got to write down a sentence, let alone a paragraph, whatever it takes, um, then I really think about it. Then I really understand what it means to me a lot better. That's That's my process. So we would meet, we would go through maybe one, two, three questions, depending how long we each talked about each one. Every Monday evening is when we met for, it took us almost two years to get all the way through that book. It took us about six months to get through step four. Step four made a searching fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Um, I want to talk a little bit about these steps. First step I've talked about. I admitted I was powerless over alcohol or at least over the effects of alcohol on my wife and me. Um, How can I be powerless over a substance? But I am and my life had become unmanageable. Step two came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Now, that one, that one was a stumbling block for me because I wasn't sure that there was such a thing as a God. And if there is, do I believe in a God? And, you know, at least agnostic. Not militant atheist, but at least agnostic. Um, And the way I got through Step 2 the first time was to consider that there are powers in this world that are greater than me. That's okay. I can I can take that. Okay. I don't have to believe in a god to understand that there are powers in this world that are greater than me. Many, many. The second part could restore us to sanity. What I could look at was my experience coming to Elanon because as I came to Elanon, as I read the literature, as I came to meetings and listened and as I spoke, I could feel sanity, wholeness, health returning. I got less angry. I got less despairing. I was able to sleep better. So maybe the meeting is a power greater than me, and the meeting is restoring me to sanity. The program is restoring me to sanity. I don't have to believe in a God at this point. Yay. Step two, accomplished. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Step three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood God. A friend of mine... There's, there's this, there's this reading in the past recovery about step three. And a friend of mine is like, every time I hear about those damn frogs on that damn lily pad, I want to scream. Okay. But the reading says there's three frogs sitting on a lily pad and one of the frogs makes a decision to jump off. How many frogs are left on the lily pad? And the answer is three because he's only made a decision. He hasn't jumped yet. Okay. So I could make a decision to turn my will and my life over to the care of Eleanor. I can make that decision and I, you know, I, I can still waffle on it. Okay. There's still a little bit of waffle room left in that step. Not if you're an AA, I think, but there is an Eleanor. uh Because without that, I can't move forward. And with that, what that what does that mean to me? That means that I read the literature. I come to meetings. I talk to my sponsor because I did have a sponsor at that point. Um, and I don't try to impose my will on the world. And and really, for me, this step is about letting go again, but it's about letting go of my will to do things the way I want them to happen. Because as we often say in the rooms, my best thinking got me here. And if I keep on that path, I'm not going to get better. Uh, And and the other thing that you hear as we start to move through here is it's not about me fixing my wife anymore. It's not about getting her to stop drinking. It's about how can I live with or without her? Because remember the question. There was that question. I can't live with her and I can't live without her. How can I live? The answer to how can I live turned out for me to be here. Now we come to step four. And when I would sit in recovery center rooms and I would see these 12 steps on the wall, and, and for those of you who maybe are new here, these 12 steps are almost exactly the same 12 steps as for AA. There's one word that's different. It's in step 12. Step 12 for AA, it says carry the message to alcoholics. And for us, we carry the message to others. And I've often heard it said, except for our alcoholic or alcoholics because That's controlling. Okay. (laughs) Um I would see these things on the wall because they almost always had them posted, these big posters like this, and I would there were two there were two at least two things. There were a couple things in here that stopped me. One is God, and the other first one was this guy right here made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves because you know what my least favorite thing to do at work is? Every year? Self evaluation. And performance appraisal. Okay, I don't want to do that. Well, that's this is even worse. This is not just how am I at work. This is how am I in my life. Okay, I don't want to do that. That stops me. And then down here, if you ever get this far down to step nine, made direct amends to those people we had harmed. <laughs> scary, scary, scary. Oh, my God. So, step four. This is the thing about working the steps with other people. I was... But what do we say? Not responsible. Um, I would made a commitment to them. I was accountable to the other people in the group to show up and to show up prepared and to participate. I couldn't sit there and keep my mouth shut. You know, the, the Wednesday night meeting that, that Robin referred to, there's, what, 60 to 100 people there. I keep my mouth shut in that. Um, when you're sitting there with eight people around a table and you've made a commitment to each other to actually work these things, you can't shut up. You can't keep your mouth shut. You can't say, No, I don't want to answer that question. I mean, you can, but I can't. So we got here. And thank God that book starts with questions about your assets. What are the things you might feel good about yourself? Um, and also, because the same eight people had been meeting already for several months five months, I don't know. We started like June or July, and this was like November. So how, you, you do the math. We had built up trust. That we trusted each other, we were starting at least starting to trust each other with ourselves. Because I tell you what, opening up for the first time is is scary. It's hard. Um, and so when we got here and we started into these gentle questions about, you know, what what are some what are some good things about myself? And I don't remember the exact questions anymore. And I'm not going to quote the book, but we started into those questions and. The, the trust continues to develop and we got to the questions about what some people call shortcomings, character defects, wrongs. We had enough trust to be open and, a, and an amazing thing happened. Um, one thing that happened was, hey, I'm not the only person who does this. I'm not the only person who has this particular flaw. Because of course I thought I was terminally unique and, and, and bad. That's just the way I think. It's the, the way I roll. Um, so I'm not alone. I'm really not alone here, and it doesn't matter because our our closing, which we'll probably close the meeting with, says "You know, we love each other in a very special way. And that is true. And I began to understand what this thing called unconditional love might mean, that I can bear the depths of my soul to you, and you still like me. You still love me. Never and never felt that before. Never, not with my parents, not with my loved ones, not with the, you know, the people I've been in relationship over the years and always, always, always held stuff back because I was afraid that you wouldn't like me if I revealed what was really going on inside. me. I thought you wouldn't like me and I didn't, I wanted you to like me. So, hey, there you go. So we got through this, we got through this searching and fearless moral inventory and then comes, oh, wait, admitted. Admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being, the exact nature of our wrongs. Well, actually, by doing step four, the questions for step four in a group, that kind of had already happened. It just happened sort of piecemeal. Um, What I found is that it's really helpful, even if I've worked through step four, maybe with my sponsor, talked about each thing as I'm going through it, or as I did with the AWOL group, it's still really helpful for me to sit down and sort of make the short list, um, to go back and pull it together so I can maybe see it on one page. Um, I think I have such a list here somewhere. Step five list from March 26, twenty twelve. Okay, which is the last time I did a step five formally. It's really helpful to see that um, because then I can start to see maybe start to see patterns as well and. Which brings me, well, I want to say, I want to say one more thing about step five. What I've found over the years is the power for me, the power in step five is in this part to another human being. If I don't open my mouth and say it out loud to somebody else, I don't believe it. That is the only way that I end up believing and owning who I am, which brings me to step six. We're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. And it sounds like there's no action there. Hey, I'm just ready. Huh? <laughs> um, this, I, and I've heard other people say this, and I believe it. This step is the beginning of true recovery <laughs> for me. Because it's in this step that I actually own my defects, that I own my shortcomings, my flaws. That I own who I am. Which then allows me to move on to, in all humility, humbly, ask the higher power of my understanding to remove my shortcomings. If I don't own them, I can't ask for them to be taken. Oh, now we're getting into the hard stuff again. made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. The first people on my list were my children. Although much of our reading recommends that we put ourselves first because we have also very clearly harmed ourselves, and, and and I definitely have needed to make amends to myself. But I was already in that process. By working these steps, I was already beginning to make amends to myself to change the way I am so that I stop hurting myself. My children, my wife. I hurt my wife in many ways during her drinking, probably before, since. Um, I diminished her. I dismissed her. I ignored her. I contradicted her. Those are just a few. I've had to make amends for those. A huge one, which, again, I did not recognize until more recently, is I put up a wall. I put up a wall between me and her that does not allow me to be intimate with her. Um, there was a lot of fear, again, of, of some kind of retribution. Whatever, I don't know, it's emotional, doesn't have to make sense. I made amends to her for that a few years ago. Uh, we went out for our 29th, 28th or 29th wedding anniversary. and And I said, <clears throat> I have built a wall and I am working to pull it down. And please be patient with me. That was between ordering and the salad. <laughs> um, you know, I got to do these things because if I don't, I stay sick. I stay stuck in my, my illness. I keep finding new things. Um, a few years ago, I realized that I had treated my children in a particular way when they were young. Um, and that I needed to make amends for that, but what I didn't know was whether they remembered that, and whether making amends would cause more harm than than not. So I had to go to my sponsor and say, "What do I do?" My sponsor suggested talking to them, saying you know, about the stuff that had gone on that we knew had gone on, and I had had that converse, one of those conversations with my daughter, and saying, "And is there anything else that you remember that I need to?" That I need to make amends for, which would give an opening to bring that into the conversation, and maybe I need to do that more than once because I don't want to do harm by bringing up something that's that's not there. Um, still kind of working on that one, so we get through the direct amends. Uh, And I add to that, I add what we call living amends, which is changing the way I act. Because I don't change something, I'm not really making amends, I'm just saying, sorry. I'm sorry, I won't do it again. Probably you've heard those words how many times? From the alcoholic in your life, from other people, probably, maybe you've said them, I know I did. I'm sorry, I won't do it again. Um, you know anger at work boy that was a big one for me i'm sorry i won't do it again i don't i don't know what happened i i just i just kind of blew up i'm sorry i won't do it again you know and then a couple of months later it happened again because there it was it was it was in me what happened to that rage you know i talked about that rage i kind of glossed over what happened what happened was it went away it just went away i wasn't angry anymore i don't know how that happened i came to meetings i listened I spoke, I read the literature, I got a sponsor, I worked the steps and my anger went away. And it, and it went away long before I got to the end of the steps. But what specifically did I do? Nothing. I did nothing specifically, it went away. That is a gift from the Al-Anon program. That is a gift of my higher power to me. Another gift is that amazing word, serenity. I didn't know what serenity was. Serenity, hey, sounds great. I'd love to have some of that. What is it? I think I'd been in the program about 10 months. My wife had relapsed after eight months sober. And it was after a meeting and somebody came up to me and said, hey, how you doing? And as opposed to early in the program when I would say, well, she's still drinking or she relapsed, I said, you know, I'm I'm pretty good. I wasn't angry today. I wasn't in fear today. I wasn't in despair today. I wasn't sad today. Maybe this is what serenity feels like. And what I came to understand is that serenity is not that everything is peaceful, that everything is calm. Serenity is I'm peaceful and I'm calm even when things around me are in chaos. Because the chaos in my house was not gone. And in fact, it was getting worse. But I, for that day at least, I was okay. I was serene. That That's another gift. That is not something I could have brought to myself. It, serenity is one of those things. The harder you try to hold on to it, the the more elusive it is. It's like trying to, you know, squeeze a, a handful of water and hold it in your fist. Doesn't work. I have to let go. I have to let go of control. I have to let go of the people and things in my life to get serenity to relax. Oh, hard. Steps ten through twelve. I love them uh, because steps ten through twelve keep me from going back here. This is this is what the rest of my life looks like. Step 10, continue to take personal inventory and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. That keeps me from having to go back to step four. If I can pick up where I screwed up, ideally before I do it, but, you know, um, shortly after, same day, same week, uh, and I can go back and, and do what I can to make it right, which is what making amends means, or making repairs. I don't carry that thing with me anymore it doesn't weigh me down and it doesn't take me back to some point where i have to do a full inventory again because you know this is it's it's not horrible but it it is arduous shall i say a lot of work you know I, I incident at work uh, about a year ago uh was in a meeting because shh, work and we were talking about something and i was disagreeing with somebody else at the table about it and he said something like, well, can't we do X? And I said, no. Okay. A little bit short. Mm, yeah. And he said, well, if that's the way it is, I have nothing more to contribute. He picked up his stuff. He walked out of the meeting and turns out he went home. I got a call from my boss later that evening. Uh, what happened? And what are you going to do about it? Well, I already knew that. I had I had a part in that. I had a fault in that. Now, you know, he shouldn't have like got up in a huff and left either, but that's not my part. My part is that I shut him down. I was not willing to hear what he had to say and explain why that was not an answer that would work, I thought would work, that I thought would work, okay? So the next morning I came in, I had a meeting with my boss at nine. So I came in early to try to meet with the guy who, because he usually came in early, And I, and, and he was there and I said to him something like, I want to apologize for the way I spoke to you in the meeting yesterday. That was entirely inappropriate on my part. And he said, well, you know, I shouldn't have gotten up and walked out and we were done. We were done. I didn't have to like feel guilty every time I saw him about this thing that was between me and him because it wasn't there anymore. Okay. That's step 10. That is the power of step 10 in my life. Step 11, sought through prayer and meditation to improve my conscious contact with God as I understood God, praying only for the knowledge of his will for me and the power to carry that out. Um, I wanna, I'm want to. i rewording the step a little bit. I want to point out the first word here. This is important. The first word here is we. We are not alone. I said that at the beginning. We are not alone. I'm still not alone, even though I say me here, um, us, whatever. Uh, right before this meeting, I went in the sanctuary, and I sat there and meditated for five minutes just on the thought, please let me say something that touches one person today. Okay? That's my goal today. If I can say something that touches one person, today was a success for me. Um, I struggle with this one. I'm, I'm sort of on and off on the prayer and meditation thing. Um, I know I need to do it. I don't do it to the extent that I feel like I should do it. And that's a nasty word, should. It's a five-letter word. S H O 6 I don't know, whatever. It's a four-letter word, Should. S-H-U-D, okay? <laughs> uh, I, need to, I need to stop shooting on myself. Uh, but I, I work on this, and some days I do better than others. Uh, I found a, a little podcast called 60 Seconds of Solitude, and it's about a three-minute long podcast where she leads you into 60-second meditation and then sort of walks you out of it. Um, I can, I can, it's on my phone, so like I'm walking to work. I can listen to it. Uh, I can actually shut my eyes and just like blink briefly to make sure that I'm still on the sidewalk and I'm not about to walk onto a street while I'm doing the 60s or I can stop. You know, maybe I should stop. That might work better too. But <laughs> you know, I, we do what we can. And and step 12 wraps it all up having had a spiritual awakening. This is the promise of the 12 steps. It doesn't say, yeah, we might have had a spiritual awakening. It doesn't say you could have a spiritual awakening. It says, by the time we got here, we had a spiritual awakening. As the result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to others and to practice these principles in all our affairs. This was not obvious for me. I got to this step in the book and the first step, the first question on step 12 in that, in that tan book says, have you had a spiritual awakening? And I had to think about it because mine was not sudden, except for that thing in the treatment center a couple of years before. That was like a flash, but mine was not sudden. Mine was not a white flash experience. Mine was gradual, but I woke up. I woke up in my life. Awakening, okay? What is awakening? It means you're waking up, right? Okay, where where everything was fuzzy, where I had no consciousness of how I was acting, why I was acting, now I do. I have woken up. And my life is different and I live my life differently and I act differently in my life with the people in my life. I carry this message. I carry this message here today. I carry this message every time I go to a meeting. I carry this message every time I answer a phone call. For those of you who are new in the program and maybe you went to a meeting and maybe you got a phone list and you're like, I can't call these people. They don't want to hear from me. I've been there. I'm worthless. You don't want to hear my problems. I've also been on the other end of those calls. And I will say that every time I get an Al-Anon call, it helps my program. I can't say how much it helps the person on the other end of the call. And sometimes I end the call feeling like I didn't say anything worthwhile, but I'm feeling a little more grounded. I'm feeling a little more centered. And then maybe I hear from the person next time I see them in a meeting, and they're like, oh, so thank you so much for what you said. What did I say? I don't know. It's like, you know, channel. So pick up the phone, pick up the phone and make that phone call because how's that, that the life you save may be your own. Is that how that goes? I don't know. Uh, Maybe I'm overdramatizing, but pick up the phone and make the phone call because I need to carry the message in order to keep what I've got. If I don't give it away, I can't keep it Um, and practicing these principles in all my affairs. I've been talking about that. I want to talk just very briefly here. I'm I'm not going to get to some of the stuff, but, um, living the steps, living these traditions. You know, a lot of people are like, ah, oh, traditions, ah, oh, whatever. You know, maybe it comes up as a topic and a meaning, like, ah, oh, I wish I wasn't here. Um, so I've heard it said, and I believe, these 12 steps allowed me to live with myself. They gave me a way to live with myself without killing myself, either directly or indirectly. These 12 traditions, they're couched in the terms of the Al-Anon groups. But if you replace group with family or group with community or group with the people at work, these 12 traditions give me a way to not kill other people. They give me a way to live with the other people in my life, whether they're the people in my family, the people at work. And I might spend more time with the people at work than I do with the people in my family, so that's really important. Um, they give me a way to not kill my children, okay? Um, that's important to me, too. I have children who challenge me. They they challenge me in various ways. They, I have twins. As I said, they're 25 now. Um, a few years ago, one of my children was in college. Well, they were both in college, but one of them was in college 2,000 miles away. And we got a phone call that they had been um, admitted to a psych ward because of an incident that possibly involved a threat to um, uh, an ex-relationship. Um, and they were considered to be a danger to themselves and others because the, they texted their their ex with the words something like "I feel like I want to either kill myself or you." Pretty clear, like yeah, possible danger to self and others. So they were in the ward where they give you the toothbrush to brush your teeth and then they take it away so you won't hurt yourself with it. And they weren't going to let them out. The 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 psych people were not going to let them out if there was nobody to let them out to because they had been banned from campus. Until they resolved this question of are they a threat, uh, so they weren't going to let them out to just be on the street. so I decided, okay, I got to fly down there so I can you know get him out um, And I went to a meeting the night before, and I said, "I'm going to fly down to you know to this situation to get my kid out of out of the hospital, and i I don't know what to do, and I was sobbing, sitting there in a room with I don't know eighty people and sobbing that I didn't know what to do said, if, if, if it was rehab, I'd know what to do. But I don't know what to do with this situation. Turned out I did. It's a miracle. Uh, so I flew down there. And what I did, and this came directly from my experience with my alcoholic of not enabling, of not helping, not, not, not helping. Okay? I did the things for my child that they could not do for themselves. I provided a place to live in a hotel. I provided meals because they can't go on campus they can't go to the, the you know the cafeteria um, and I provided transportation because they lived on campus and walked everywhere and they weren't living on campus. they dealt with the consequences of their own actions by talking to the counselor to convince them that it was okay to readmit them to school by accepting from an armed policeman a restraining order from their ex uh, no contact, by finding a new place to live because their ex lived down the hall in the same dorm and it's really hard to have no contact when you're living down the hall from each other. They did all that themselves, and I did what they couldn't do. And that was something that I learned here, how to how to help support without controlling, without taking over. Um, And at the end of that visit, this child who, when they went off to college, Everybody in the family was entirely ready for them to be gone, including themselves, to be 2,000 miles away because they were angry teenager. They were angry. At the end of that week that I was down there, they gave me a hug and said, Thank you for coming. I don't know what I would have done without you. What a gift. What a gift. This child continued to challenge me. When they went to grad school, they decided they were going to live in the woods in a tent because it would be cheaper. I couldn't talk them out of it. So I drove them, drove them 15 hours to where they were going to grad school, literally dropped them off at the curb with their backpack and their bicycle, not knowing where they were going to sleep that night. Said goodbye, good luck, and drove away. That, I think, may be the hardest thing I have ever done in my entire life. And the only reason I was able to do it was because of the support of people like you, because of people in the rooms, the people with whom I talked it out for probably weeks before the the event, the people who were there to talk to me on the phone for an hour as I was driving several people, an hour each. Um, The people who loaned me books on CD to listen to about acceptance. That's that's the only way I made it through that, that trip. Um, as for the kid, they learned fairly quickly that living in the woods is hard. <laughs> it takes a lot of time and a lot of energy. Um, and they found an apartment <laughs> and I had nothing to do with it. You know, I didn't make them do it. I didn't make them give up their dream. So I want to circle back right at the end here to what happened to my wife. Cause you know, I kind of left you hanging with that. Um, What happened with that question? Do I stay or do I go? It took me two years to find the answer to that question. And it wasn't necessarily a comfortable two years, but it took me two years. And this, I call this a higher power moment because there's no way that this happened as a result of deliberate rational thought on my part. I was standing there one evening. She was passed out on the bed. And this voice in my head said, there lies the woman that you love the woman that you married, and she is in the grips of a horrible disease that makes her act in ways that I hate. But she's still in there, and I still love her, and I can stay. Okay. took me two years to get there, but that was the answer that came for me. Um, She found sobriety a year and a half or so later, and I had nothing to do with it. She woke up one morning and said, I don't want to drink today, and I don't want to drink tomorrow. Can you help me get rid of all the alcohol in the house? And I say, Yeah, I can do that. And I had I had nothing to do with that decision, and I have had nothing to do with her sobriety. She works her program. I work my program. Eleanor gives me the ability to stay out of her business um, and let her do that. So that's what I found here. I found a new way of living. I found a way to be a person I like. I found a way to be a person who is able to live with the people around me and not try to change them to fit who I think they need to be. And incidentally, I figured out how to live with an alcoholic. So I hope maybe you find something like what I've found in this program. Thank you. you. I want to thank again, Lucy, Melanie, and Michael who through their generous contributions, using the donation button on our website, have made it possible for us to stay in your ear and on the web. Thank you again. Thank you for listening, and please keep coming back. Whatever your problems, there are those among us who have had them too. If we did not talk about a problem you are facing today, feel free to contact us so we can talk about it in a future episode. May understanding, love, and peace growing you one day at a time.